virtual traveller and welcome to Stories from Law, a monthly podcast that invites you to rewild yourself through story by exploring nature, folklore and the stories it inspires. My name is Dawn Nelson and I am an author and professional storyteller. Welcome to the second episode of Season 3. I was pleased to hear listeners enjoyed the new format and so I will be continuing with my nature rambles and ballad explorations for at least this season. For this episode, patrons chose Written in the Stars and this month, I take you on a little stargazing in our local fields, sing a lament to the moon, talk about the folklore found in the night sky, and tell you the Greek myth of Bellerophon and the Chimera. So grab yourself a coffee and follow me into the night. It is a lovely, clear night now, despite today's weather. We've had that fine rain soaks you to the bone even though you don't realize that you're actually getting wet and then for the last couple of hours we've had beautiful clear skies which is extremely fortuitous because i have just been stargazing with the cub group that i lead we got to see lots of the stars and there is a really bright half moon in the sky, quite low, but high enough above the rooftops for me to be able to see it at the moment. It's in its first quarter. And above it, I can see Jupiter. So it's lovely to be able to point that out to the kids. You can probably hear the traffic going by on the road as well, and the bell ringers have been practicing down in the church, so you might hear them start up again in a moment. There they are. So what can I see from my garden? I have a south-facing garden. And then to the west is the moon and Jupiter. And across to the east, I can just see the faint outline of the Seven Sisters or Pallades. I can see the W of Cassiopeia very clearly tonight. She was another one that we could see very clearly for the cubs, which was good. And then, of course, the good old plough is there tonight as well. I'm very lucky to live on the South Downs, which bills itself as a Dark Skies National Park. So that means that we don't have street lamps here. And even though the lights are on in the house, all the curtains are closed. So there's very, very little light pollution here. It's currently eight o'clock on November the 11th. A cool, crisp, clear night. As you can hear, the bell ringers have started again further down in the village. It's a wonderful night to be out looking up at the stars. Never ceases to amaze me the stories the Greeks made out of the stars. It's like that game you used to play as children when you looked up at the clouds and worked out what animals were in them. And I played that game tonight with the cubs, but this time with the stars. Let's forget a moment that there are constellations up there that somebody's already named. 
Let's see if you can come up with some. One of them came up with a sickle, which was actually Cassiopeia. But when you look at her, you can see it there. Another decided that the Big Dipper was actually a wheelbarrow, which again is fair enough. Somebody else was sure they saw a cat up there, which I think if there was, Cirrus would be chasing. In this episode, I'll be singing the folk ballad, Lament to the Moon. I hope you'll enjoy it. As I strayed along at the close of the day, about the beginning of June, t'was there in the glade I espied a fair maid, as she sung her lament to the moon. Roll along, silvery moon, guide the traveller on his way, whilst the nightingale sings her sweet tune. There is no time so sweet as when true lovers meet by the bright silvery light of the moon. My love, he was young and a bold fisherman, his arms were as brawny and strong. His voice was clear and a pleasure to hear when singing an old shanty song. But his boat went down and my true love had found a grave neath the deep angry sea. Never more to return, and it's for him I shall mourn Till the day that the clay covers me He bought me a ring, we appointed the day For it's married we were to be soon But also my grief, he now lies in the deep Cut down like a rose in full bloom. Roll along, silvery moon, guide the traveller on his way, whilst the nightingale sings her sweet tune. There is no time so sweet as when true lovers meet by the bright silvery light of the moon. Roll along, silvery moon, guide the traveller on his way, whilst the nightingale sings her sweet tune. There is no time so sweet as when true lovers meet by the bright silvery light of the moon. For thousands of years we have looked to the stars to show us our destiny. Even now, some still consult their star signs in order to determine how their year, week or even day will turn out. Your star sign, sun sign, moon sign, rising sign, descending sign, well, they all have a bearing on your life and 
Over time, this has become more and more layered and nuanced, a job for experts who have immersed themselves in the study of astrology. So what would our ancestors have thought of all this fortune-telling with the stars? Well, actually, they'd probably have agreed. Now, when I was growing up, in most newspapers and several magazines, you'd find predictions for your week ahead based on your star sign. You'll still find them today, as I mentioned earlier, and in fact, there are now many online sites as well, which will provide you with predictions for your whole year. I am, of course, talking about the Zodiac. But where did the idea of the Zodiac come from? Well, the Zodiac was a term used by the Greeks to describe the oval-shaped path that the Earth takes around the sun. It's an elliptical path, a little like a belt in the sky, and the word itself can be translated as circle of animals. There are 12 signs in total. Aries the ram, Taurus the bull, Gemini the twins, which if you look up you can see are two stars called Castor and Pollux, Cancer the crab, Leo the lion, Virgo, who is a woman, Libra, a set of scales, Scorpio, a scorpion, Sagittarius, a centaur, Capricorn, half goat, half fish, Aquarius is a water bearer, and Pisces, a fish. All these 12 signs can be seen as constellations within the sky, and they can be seen from the path that Earth takes around the sun, and so they will appear in the sky in different places at different times of year. Hence, they are most dominant in particular months, and this is why we use them to predict our fortune. Whatever star constellation was dominant in the month that you were born is your star sign. The zodiac I'm describing is, of course, the Western zodiac. And there's a lot more to it than I've just mentioned. That's just the basics. But there are also Hindu zodiacs and Chinese zodiacs. So throughout the world, humans are looking to the sky to divine their future. So what else are the stars able to predict? Well, there's lots of folklore when it comes to looking up at the night sky. Making a wish on the first star that you see is something that I was taught when I was very young. And the little poem that goes, Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, have the wish I wish tonight. It's probably something you might find me muttering under my breath even now. In some folklore, it's thought that the stars can even predict the weather. For example, if it is a clear night but you can't really see the constellation of Cancer very well, that's the crab constellation. If it's not clearly discernible, then regardless of the absence of clouds, rain is on its way. Furthermore, when sailors observe shooting stars, then they are able to predict the direction of the wind depending on the direction of the star. There are, of course, more reliable ways to work out which direction and how fast you should be moving in, though, now. And the North Star was actually a very reliable way of sailors working out which direction they were going in. Because of this, the North Star became very lucky. As a sailor, if you were to catch just a glimpse of that star, it meant that you were heading home and you were close. Whether stars are in relation to the moon is also thought to be an indicator of what weather there may be to come. Of course, all these celestial objects and constellations weren't just important when it came to superstitions and predictions. They were also very important in the way that we measured time. In fact, we still do that now. We do that, obviously, with the sun and the moon and our day and our night. But also we measure the month in terms of the phases of the moon. So the new moon, the waxing crescent, the first quarter, the waxing gibbous, the full moon, the waning gibbous, the third quarter and the waxing crescent. There is approximately three to four days between each one of these phases. Hence, 
the full moon occurs every 29 and a half days. So once more, it seems, we are recognising the moon and tapping into its energy. In ancient cultures, often the sun, moon and stars played a part in the end of time itself. In the Norse mythology, Sol and Mani ride chariots across the sky, carrying the sun and moon respectively. They are chased by two wolves, Skoll and Haiti, again, respectively. If Skoll ever started to catch up with the sun, or Haiti the moon, well, the explanation for this was an eclipse. And if the wolves finally eat their quarry, well, that will signify the end of days, the day to end all days known as Ragnarok. In Christianity, this also occurs when Jesus talks of the end of the world. In Matthew 24, 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. But it is not just in religious texts and myths that we find these dire warnings. To point or count stars used to be seen as extremely unlucky. This is possibly because to point at somebody, certainly in Western culture, is considered to be very rude. So if you were pointing at the stars and the stars held the gods, you were literally pointing at a god. So that's probably not going to be very good luck. In the 19th century, people are said to have been struck dead for doing this as well. Shooting stars were not viewed with an ooh or an ah. Instead, they were seen as signifying death and disaster. A comet that was seen and recorded in the year 1066 was thought to be the reason for the Great Plague. And so it is that it seems that these balls of gas in the sky, thousands of miles away, held the key to our fate for all. If our ancestors were once worried about the eclipse of the moon and what it meant when there was no moon and it was a dark night, well, they were just as fascinated by the full moon when the night was lit up by its silvery glow. In many farming almanacs, you will find the full moon of each month is given a name depending on the season and what tasks might best be performed during that month. These names vary depending on the point in history, the culture they're from, and perhaps even the country. Possibly the one set that we are most familiar with, and that have become quite fashionable today, are those of the Native Americans. However, here in the UK and Europe, we also had ancient names for these full moons. In the Celtic calendar, January was the quiet moon, February the moon of ice, March was the moon of winds, April the growing moon, May the bright moon, June the moon of horses, July the moon of claiming, August a dispute moon, September a singing moon, October a harvest moon, November the dark moon, and December the cold moon. As the years advanced and we reached the English medieval period, January became the wolf moon, February the storm moon, March the chaste moon, April the seed moon, so a little similar to the growing moon in the Celtic calendar, May the hare moon, June the dyad moon, July the mead moon, August the corn moon, September the barley moon, October the blood moon, November the snow moon, and December the oak moon. These names then seem to have been adopted by Gerald Gardner when he outlined the Wiccan faith in 1954. But many of us still use these names today, and the most famous of these are the January wolf moon, the May hare moon, or flower moon as some people call it, which actually comes from the Native American calendar, and the October harvest or blood moon. There is one moon, however, which I have not yet mentioned, and that is the blue moon. 
What is a blue moon? Well, as I said, a full moon occurs approximately every 29.5 days. So that's around about a month, but not quite. And so that's where the blue moon comes in. If we have two full moons within one calendar month, and by which I mean the Gregorian calendar, well then this moon is called the blue moon. So we might use this phrase to suggest that something doesn't really happen very often, so something that happens once in a blue moon. But the truth is that blue moons do actually happen quite regularly. In the 16th century, the phrase he would argue that the moon was blue was effectively the same as saying he would argue black was white or white was black. So just someone being purposefully argumentative. Later in the 18th century, it started to become an expression used for something that was unlikely to occur, as it is now. In the 18th century, they would use the phrase when the moon is blue, so basically meaning it was never going to happen, a little like the slightly more aggressive phrase when hell freezes over. Of course, the moon itself doesn't actually turn blue. Or does it? Back in 1883, when the Indonesian volcano Krakatoa exploded, it turned sunsets green and the moon blue across the world, and it lasted for the best part of two years. Also, these days when there are more forest fires due to the effects of global warming and these fires burn longer and are harder to control, well, the smoke particles and the dust, they hang in the air for longer. And these particles of dust and smoke, well, they can make the moon appear blue too. There is, of course, a lot more folklore and stories associated with the moon, but for the purposes of this episode, I would like to return to the stars. One of the brightest stars in our sky is Cirrus, the dog star. This is the bright star that makes up part of the constellation of Canis Major. Cirrus is one of Orion's hunting dogs, and even if you're not familiar with the stars or the Greek myths, you may recognise his name from the popular franchise Harry Potter. Sirius Black was the shape-shifting wizard in the stories. And what do you think he shape-shifted into? That's right, a black dog. But if you want to know more about black dogs, then do hop back to season one, episode one, for plenty of folklore on this subject. Instead, I'm going to look at the significance of Cirrus the star in our folklore. In the summer, there is a period of time that the Romans referred to as Dies Caniculares, or dog days. These were the days when the bright star of Cirrus would appear on the horizon just before sunrise. When this star appeared in this particular position, both the Greeks and the Romans would consider this to be the beginning of the hottest days of summer. These days, we don't necessarily rely on the appearance of Cirrus to predict this. But in the farming almanacs of the United States, they record that the 40 days between July the 3rd and August the 11th are known as dog days. For our ancestors, this period predicted heat waves, fevers and madness. Cirrus, of course, also has a story of Orion attached to him. Orion decided he would take on the hunter Artemis. He decided that he was a very good hunter and he would prove to Artemis that he could hunt much better than she could. Well, I think anybody that knows about the Greek gods and goddesses knows that it's probably not a good idea to cross one of them. But, well, his pride earned him a death at the tail of a scorpion. The gods were in disagreement as to whether this was fair or not and whether or not he should have died. Asclepius, the healer, wished to bring him back to life. But Zeus, well, he wasn't too keen on the idea of Asclepius giving humans immortality willy-nilly. So he struck a compromise with Asclepius, and Zeus put Orion in the stars instead. And to keep him company, he put his hunting dogs up there, one of which is Sirius. And there is also a hare there, which was one of Orion's favourite things to hunt. Also, you'll find the scorpion. This, of course, is a very truncated version of this story, and if you'd like to, 
You can find out more about this particular myth in the e-zine that's across on my Patreon this month. There are many, many star constellations linked to the Greek myths, so what others might you have heard of? Well, I'll share a few with you. There's Ursa Major, it's also known as the Plough or the Great Bear, and she was cast among the stars along with her son, Ursa Minor, or the Little Bear. And the story goes that she was once a princess called Callisto, and she caught the eye of Zeus. This, of course, angered Zeus's wife, Hera. Um, Hera, the jealousy festered within her, and eventually she turned the princess into a bear, and she was destined to live in the forest as her son Arcus grew up in the palace. Arcus grew into a fine hunter, and one day when he was out hunting, he came upon the bear in the forest. Well, of course, the bear is his mother, but he doesn't know this, and so when he raises his bow and arrow to shoot his mother, Zeus is watching and cannot have this happen, because he knows that it is Hera's fault that this has come to pass. And the last thing he wants is for Callisto's son to kill her. So he changes Arcus into a bear as well. And then he comes down from the sky and he takes hold of the two bears by their tails. He swings them round and he flings them up into the sky so that they may be together as stars. So you may be noticing a little bit of a theme here, as it could be said that changing people into stars was Zeus's get-out clause, or a way of making amends, if you like. You may also have heard of Pegasus. He's also in the stars, and he is the half-brother of Bellerophon. He is, of course, a famous winged horse. He assists his brother in his defeat of the Chimera. And it is this story that I would like to tell you next. There was once a prince of Corinth who had fallen on hard times. His name was Bellerophon. He was an honourable man, and he found himself in the court of King Proteus. There he sought sanctuary, and whilst Proteus could see that Bellerophon was a prince and a man of noble birth, Bellerophon would not allow Proteus to do him any favours, and instead he worked hard for Proteus and served him faithfully. Unfortunately for Bellerophon, Proteus's wife, Queen Antia, had taken a liking to him, for he was a handsome young man. She tried on many occasions to seduce him, but Bellerophon was not paying her any mind. Proteus had been good to him, and he was not about to sleep with his wife as payment, no matter how beautiful Antia was. And so it was that Bellerophon incurred the wrath of a woman scorned. Queen Antia went to her husband, the King Proteus, and accused Bellerophon of assaulting her. Of course he had not. Proteus did not want to believe this. However, neither was he going to call his wife a liar. Reluctant to put Bellerophon to death, a man who had proven loyal up until this point and extremely useful in defending Proteus's kingdom, well, the king thought it best to send Bellerophon away to Queen Antia's father, King Iobates. Queen Antia handed Bellerophon a letter to take with him to her father, and unbeknownst to both Proteus and Bellerophon, this letter was essentially a death warrant for Bellerophon, as it asked King Iobates to put to death the bearer of the letter. When Bellerophon arrived in the palace of King Iobates, well, this king too had no wish to bloody his hands with the death of Bellerophon. He was well used to his daughter's manipulative ways, and he wondered whether the man who stood before him was indeed guilty of the crimes his daughter had accused him of. So he decided to find another way around it. 
Aobates decided to set Bellerophon to such a task that there was no way he would return from it alive, and he had just the task in mind. And so it was that King Aobates set about telling his story to Bellerophon. He told him that the letter he had before him was from King Proteus, and that it said that Bellerophon was the only man to free Aobates from his enemies, and so he had sent him to him to complete the task. Aobates tells Bellerophon of how the king of Caria threatens their land despite Aobates' mighty armies. This king is able to do so because he has a chimera. This chimera is a terrible monster that has the head of a lion, the body of a goat and the tail of a huge hissing serpent. The lion's head breathes out fire so that no one can get anywhere near it and King Aobates believes that the king of Caria is amassing a great army under the cover of the Chimera and will soon attack Iobates' kingdom. Bellerophon does not even need to be asked directly to kill the Chimera. For him, this is family, the family of the king and queen who took him in. Iobates is taken aback with the speed at which Bellerophon agrees to take on this task, but there is no turning back now. The stage has been set and Iobates thinks, well, either way, I'll be rid of the Chimera or rid of an inconvenient houseguest. Eager to begin his task, Bellerophon starts to ask questions about the Chimera, whether it has any weaknesses perhaps, where exactly it's located, and whether it always breathes fire. He clearly has no idea what he is up against, and Iobates does have a small amount of pity for Bellerophon, so he suggests to him that he may be able to vanquish the Chimera if he is able to harness the winged horse Pegasus. Again, thinking that there is no way that Bellerophon will actually achieve this. But what Iobates does not know is that Bellerophon is the half-brother of Pegasus and one of the only mortals that would ever be able to ride this winged horse. However, Bellerophon still needed a golden bridle in order to harness Pegasus and ride him. Some say that this journey took him to the temple of Athena, who gifted him the golden bridle, and others say that Bellerophon sought the help of a seer, and this seer counselled Bellerophon in how to tame the winged horse. Either way, the story goes that Bellerophon found himself in possession of a golden bridle and on the banks of a crystal-clear river that sprung from snow-capped mountain peaks. He waited there for many days, for he knew that Pegasus would have to come down from the sky to drink from this stream, and eventually Pegasus did appear. Through stealth and wit, Bellerophon was able to creep up on Pegasus and throw the bridle over his neck. Before Pegasus could fly off, as Bellerophon knew Pegasus would, he leapt up on the horse's back, and what ensued was, well, a sort of bizarre bucking bronco across the night sky. But Bellerophon stayed on, and he spoke to Pegasus with kind words and told him that he was his brother and that he wished him no harm. He told him of how he desperately needed Pegasus's help. In time, the horse grew calm and listened to the words of Bellerophon. He told Pegasus of his promise to King Iobates, and Pegasus knew of the Chimera and where to find it, and took Bellerophon straight to the site of the fire-breathing beast. Looking down on this monstrosity, Bellerophon was beginning to think that his task was actually impossible, yet he had come so far. He brought Pegasus around in a circle, high above the Chimera, high enough so that the smoke and the flames did not reach them, and he decided what to do. Bellerophon was an excellent marksman, and he knew if he could get a clear shot and the arrow flew true, well, he could slay this three-headed demon. 
And so it was that Bellerophon drew back his bow and fired it towards the chimera. Each hit reached its mark, but every arrow he fired fell, bouncing on the ground, useless against the chimera's impenetrable skin. He knew not how he was going to defeat this creature without getting closer. And if he got any closer, well, that was potentially the death of both him and Pegasus. And he did not want that. And then he had a thought. He turned Pegasus around and flew to the nearest village where he found a blacksmith. He begged the blacksmith to help him with his quest and the blacksmith had indeed heard of this fearsome foe. Bellerophon asked him to make him an arrow of lead. The blacksmith did not have the heart to tell Bellerophon that no one had ever returned from an attempt to kill the Chimera. So he obliged. He obliged and he made the arrow for Bellerophon so that he may at least try. Bellerophon and Pegasus returned to the gates of the city of Cariah, where the Chimera still stood breathing out its fiery plumes. Bellerophon steered Pegasus up and up into the sky as they had before, flying higher and higher until they were directly above the Chimera, but out of reach of its fire. He drew back the bow, this time with the lead arrow in it. Instead of aiming at the hide of the Chimera, Bellerophon aimed the arrow straight into the gaping maw of the lion's head. It found its target, and at first the creature was not at all slowed down by the arrow. But soon the flames turned to black smoke and the lion's jaws gaped. What Bellerophon had hoped for had come to pass. As soon as the lead hit the heat that was within the chimera, well, it had started to melt, and the chimera began to choke as the molten lead slid down its throat and into its belly. The liquid lead wrapped itself around its vital organs, solidifying them in an iron-fast grip. The chimera finally fell dead and defeated, and Bellerophon returned to the palace of King Iobates. However, he was not welcomed with open arms, as Iobates fully expected him to be dead, as the letter had instructed him to do. Instead, Bellerophon found soldiers and guards trying to kill him. Bellerophon was enraged, given the service he had just done King Iobates, and with the bodies of the king's soldiers strewn around him, he demanded an explanation from the king. Iobates tells him of the letter and how he cannot believe it, for the man who stands before him is clearly a loyal man. He begs Bellerophon's forgiveness and offers him his daughter's hand in marriage by way of compensation. And thus ends this chapter of Bellerophon's adventures. But, as with all of the great Greek myths, there is always a sequel. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, Exploring the Night Sky with me. Of course, I have mainly been talking about the Northern Hemisphere, as I am biased in this respect, because, well, that's the sky that I'm looking at. However, the sky is vast, and there are more than just Greek myths up there. One that captured my imagination during my research for this episode was from the Venda people of South Africa, who thought the sky was a solid dome, a ceiling over the earth, and that the stars hung from this ceiling by cords. I think that's rather magical. Of course, this is one of the many, many myths that you will find in the Southern Hemisphere, and I've included a link in the show notes to a page on the Royal Museum of Greenwich's website, and that tells you a little more about some more of these South African star myths. I heartily encourage you to find out more about these cultures. I also have a favour to ask of you this month, folks. 
I would love to reach more listeners with this podcast, and that means that I need the help of you, lovely lot. To reach more listeners, I need to get reviews. And so if you could visit the Apple Podcast website and leave me a review, well, I would be very, very grateful. Or any of the other podcast websites that you use that allow you to leave a review. By leaving reviews, it raises the profile of the podcast, and that means that it reaches more people. So it's very much appreciated. Over on my Patreon this month, amongst other things, there are Greek myths galore, stargazing tips, a recipe for galaxy muffins, and a sneak peek at the tales I will be telling for my December events. My Patreon is called Rewild Yourself Through Story, and it's focused on using story to reconnect with the land we live on and the nature within it. And to become a patron, you can follow the link that's in the show notes. As always, you can find me on Instagram as at dd underscore storyteller, on Facebook as dd storyteller, and on Twitter as at dd underscore storyteller. I hope to see you there, as I would love to tell you another story. Until then, I'll see you next time. Toodle pip.